hope you enjoy this message from South City C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. I'm really looking forward to sharing with you guys tonight as we continue the series that we've been doing called What's Sex Got to Do With It? And what we've been doing in this series is we have been exploring what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus to do singleness, dating, and marriage well, and how to take good care of our sexuality along the way. And last week, Jaunty highlighted the challenges, but also how great singleness can be. And uh, as he said last week, there is nothing wrong with being single or wanting to stay single. And I just want to say yes and amen to everything that Jaunty said in his message last week. And often I say that about most things that Jaunty says. So in tonight's talk, we are, however, going to be exploring the journey of dating that we almost certainly must go on if we are wanting to get married someday. So if you're here tonight and you are a single person who would like to be married someday, well then this talk is for you. And if you're here tonight and you're single and you're not wanting to get married or you are no longer single, well then this talk is still for you tonight because you might know some friends or some family who might like to be married someday who you can be of great encouragement along the way. And the journey of dating reminds me of another journey that I went on one time. I was headed down with a group of people to a conference that was happening in Kansas City. And uh, I had to get there from my home in Michigan. It's a relatively short drive, about 1,300 kilometers. And uh, you may, may or may not know this about Americans, but they tend to not really see a problem with driving insane distances. And I think that has something to do with the fact that it's far cheaper to drive anywhere than it is to fly anywhere in America. But we get going on this road trip, and I'm riding shotgun in my friend Jeremy's 1996 Buick. And uh, about an hour into the drive, we develop a bit of a problem. All of a sudden, the windscreen wiper fluid stops working. And so Jeremy's trying to pull the little stick thing next to the wheel, and nothing's spraying out on the, on the uh, windscreen. Now, on a clear day, this would not be a big deal. But this was a typical December wintry day in northern Michigan. And so what you get in the winter is there's a, lot of, there's a lot of like snow and slush and stuff on the roads. And so you get this constant mist when you're driving on the motorway of this like dirty water that gets thrown up by all of the, the cars and the trucks. And it sort of smears all over your windscreen. And you know, I never really appreciated how important windscreen wiper fluid was until that particular moment when our view of the motorway was suddenly smudged and uh, I thought that my life story was going to end in a fiery car wreck. So Jeremy pulls off to the side of the motorway and he tries to get the fluid spraying again and we take a look. We can't work out why it's not coming out. Uh, but one thing Jeremy did figure out is that if he used the windscreen wipers, it would kind of smear the dirt and the mud on the windscreen in just such a way that there was this little clear strip of glass that was just enough to be able to see through to drive on. And so Jeremy and I, being teenage boys, figured that was probably good enough to go on. And uh, that's a decision that really goes to show the fact that the male brain's ability to make good decisions is not fully developed until the age of 25. 
So we spend the next several hours hurtling down the motorway with Jeremy hunched over the wheel and squinting through this dirty windscreen while I was in the passenger seat working out which of my possessions was going to go to which of my family members. And you'll be pleased to know we did eventually make it to Kansas City alive and with all of our limbs and our vital organs intact. But the fact that our windscreen was so dirty made that drive a whole lot more stressful than it had to be. And it also made it a whole lot more likely that we would have a collision that could have hurt us or hurt other people. If we simply could have seen clearly with the right perspective, we would have had a much more enjoyable journey to our destination. And that was true for the journey to Kansas City, but I think that is also true for the journey of dating. You see, dating is meant to be a fun and exciting journey that a person goes on to find someone to get married to and share their life with. But all too often, we've picked up some hurts and some beliefs along the way that are just like the dirty water that sort of smears our view and makes it hard to clearly see where we're going. And if we don't be intentional about cleaning that stuff off and getting the right perspective, well, then dating can be a lot more stressful than it needs to be. And we can suddenly become a lot more likely to cause a crash that hurts us or hurts other people. So tonight, my hope is to give you some thoughts and some tools uh, on how you can get the best perspective that you can have around the subject of dating so that dating can be the life-giving and character-shaping season that God intends for it to be for you. So tonight we're going to talk about God's perspective on dating. We're going to look at four common myths about dating. And we're going to look at seven tips, seven, on how to help you date well. And this is important for us to get our heads around because after all, having the right perspective makes dating more effective. So what is God's perspective on dating. Well, I decided to look up the book of the Bible that most obviously gives us God's thoughts on dating. But uh, I had a bit of a hard time locating it because God never really talks about dating in the Bible. And uh, that's because dating is more of a modern invention and the people of biblical times tended to go more for the whoever's got the biggest cow gets to marry the eldest daughter sort of model of matchmaking. Which, you know, it kind of worked for them. But uh, we don't really do that here in New Zealand. So that's, that's a bit tricky. How are we supposed to know what God's perspective on dating is if it's not explicitly mentioned in the Bible? Well, driving a car isn't mentioned in the Bible either, but we sort of innately understand as followers of Jesus that screaming profanities at pedestrians and giving the middle finger to other motorists is generally not considered good Christian practice. Although if the light turns green and they're texting and they don't notice, it's maybe. So although dating is not directly mentioned in the Bible, we can look at certain principles in scripture and get a feel for what God's perspective on dating is like. So if you look in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 4, Jesus gives some of his perspective on marriage. It reads in verse 4, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, 
and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So in God's perspective, marriage is something deeply precious and sacred and holy between a man and a woman. And it means that they become one flesh. It means that they are woven together physically, emotionally, sexually, and spiritually. And to split something up that has become one means that you'd have to, you'd have to break something or rip something in order to separate the two pieces. So it's pretty serious business to get married to someone and to have sex with them because it means that two people are being woven together at the most intimate of levels. Which brings us to our next scriptural principle that I think speaks to how we can approach dating. Jump with me to Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 28, and you'll see Jesus saying the following to his disciples. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So what Jesus is saying here is that when someone sits down and wants to plan out building a tower, the first thing they do is they they start working out how many bricks they're going to need to purchase, how much mortar they're going to need to buy, and how many doors and windows is this tower going to have. And then they take all of those different components and they add up all the expenses and they consider the cost to make sure that it was something that they could actually commit to doing. And that is exactly what I believe healthy dating is all about. You see, when you're dating someone, you are coming together with another person and you are getting to know them and you're finding out their likes and their dislikes and how kind they are and what their faith is like and how often they wash their dishes and how many kids do they want and what is their prayer life like and how do they treat their barista down at the coffee shop and what do they like to do in their spare time and will they really listen when I challenge them on something and on and on and on so that you can evaluate and they can evaluate if the two of you have what it takes to build a life together as one. And that's why healthy dating is so key to starting a healthy marriage. Because how can you possibly know that you want to build an entire life together with another person until you've both sat down and counted the cost? I believe in God's perspective that dating ought to be the pursuit of finding someone to get married to where you get to experience the joy of going on the journey of counting the cost together. And it doesn't mean that we marry the first person that we date or that we know whether or not we would marry someone the first time that we get together with them. But it does mean that marriage to someone ought to be the end goal of our dating. And it's important that our perspective on dating is informed by the way that God sees marriage because it means that you'll then understand the beauty and the holiness of the journey of dating that it takes to get there. If marriage is holy in God's perspective, well then dating must be holy too. And if we have the right perspective, it makes dating more effective.
<laughs> so that hopefully helps to answer the question of what God's perspective is on dating. Next, I want to inform your perspective on dating by exploring four common myths that are out there about dating, particularly within Christian circles. So the first myth is this. Myth number one, I have to find the one. This myth is the belief that God has one person that he has ordained for you to marry and that it is your life's mission to find this person. And this is one of those myths that are actually kind of sinister because it sounds sort of noble at first. After all, what Christian wouldn't want to wait for the person that it was God's will for them to marry? But in practice, you dig a little bit, and this belief actually creates a lot of problems. Firstly, it puts a lot of pressure on us to figure out whether or not the person that we're interested in is the one, something you don't really want to ask somebody when you're on your first date. Uh, secondly, what if we do feel like they are the one? And we end up getting married to them. And then let's say things in the marriage don't go super well. Then it might become, in our eyes, God's fault. Because how could God lead me into a bad marriage? And another way this myth shows up is when someone breaks up with someone that they're dating. And they use God as an excuse to say, sorry, I just don't feel like God wants me to date you anymore. And then the other person who's been dumped has to figure out why the heck God thought they were so horrible of a person that he told their boyfriend or girlfriend to break up with them. And so the list of the bad fruit of this myth goes on and on and on. And the truth is there are many, many people out there that you have compatibility with that you could marry and live a godly life with. So relax, go find one of those cool people and start getting to know each other. Myth number two. This one says, I should try before I buy. And so this myth says that you should probably try living together, probably try having sex with a person before you consider getting married to them. And on its face, this feels, again, kind of like it makes sense. I mean, before you commit to spending an entire lifetime with someone, Shouldn't you know what it's like to live with them and if you're sexually compatible with them? But the real problem with the try before I buy mentality is that by living together or entering into a sexual relationship or both with the person that you're dating is that you suddenly inherit all of the challenges of marriage but without the benefit of the lifelong commitment. Let me tell you what I mean by that. After Sarah and I had been married for three months, someone asked me, so how is marriage going? I said, oh, great. Marriage is so much fun. Around the same time, Sarah had a friend ask her, so how is the marriage going? Sarah said, I can see why people get divorced. <laughs> so Sarah had some issues that she needed to work on. <laughs> now, we both had some areas that we needed to work on. Uh, but the fact that we were now married to each other and we were committed to each other until death do us part meant that, at least in our minds, splitting up was no longer an option for us. And when splitting up is no longer an option, it means that you've got to figure your problems out and figure out how you're going to make life work together. 
But had we lived together first, Sarah might have concluded right away that it wasn't going to work. And we might have actually missed out on eight years and counting of a beautiful and life-giving marriage. And I realize that that's just our story and life's more messy than that for many of us. And, and that there might be people here or who are listening in on the live stream who have lived together with someone or who have had sex before marriage. And I'm not saying that those people can't go on to have a godly and happy and fulfilling marriage, because they can. But I think our culture treats sex with a casualness that doesn't reflect how big of a thing it is to become one flesh with another person. But I think God understands how we're designed and really does want to set us up to have a healthy marriage that makes a healthy family. So I don't think that you have to live together or sleep together with someone to know if you are compatible. Instead, I think through dating, you can count the cost, you can communicate a lot, you can talk through what your expectations for marriage are, and after talking through all of those things and getting to a place where you're both reasonably sure that you could be happy being married to each other, then you make the commitments and you get married. Said another way, you should talk a lot before tying the knot. Myth number three, I have to be totally happy and fulfilled in Christ as a single person before I get married. And this one sounds good apart from the fact that if you wait until you're totally happy and fulfilled to get married, then you'll never get married. So if you want to get married, don't buy into this myth. Myth number four, Christians shouldn't date online. You know what, if you don't know any guys or girls in your circle that you think that you'd want to date, then I don't really personally see anything wrong with putting yourself out there. I think online dating services are not necessarily good or bad. They are just tools that you use. Uh, but I would say use some level of wisdom in which services that you use, because some have a bit of a reputation for being more about finding somebody to hook up with, like that one app that starts with a T and rhymes with Tinder. Uh, but you know, there's nothing wrong with Christian mingling your way into a healthy relationship. So that is four common myths about dating that if we are not careful can act like the smudges on our windscreen that keep us from being able to date well. And when we clear them off, we can often get a better, a better perspective, which is always a good thing since having the right perspective makes dating more effective. So now that we've covered some of those myths, I want to also leave you with seven tips to help you date well. So let's look at tip number one. Guys, you need to ask girls on dates. Guys, don't spend months or years crushing on a girl and feeling too afraid to ask her out because the worst thing that she can say is no and you'll save yourself the time of wondering if it was ever going to work. Best thing she could say is yes. It could be the start of something beautiful. And you know what? Even if she does say no or even worse, laughs at you or something like that, it's actually going to be okay because you are a Christian man whose worth is found in who God says you are and not what one girl thinks about you. So guys, ask girls out. Tip number two. Girls, you need to ask guys on dates. 
Ladies, there is absolutely nothing wrong with asking a guy to go on a date. In fact, Sarah was the one who initiated our first date. And look how that turned out for us. <laughs> so there is, you know, there is something to be said about guys being more sort of wired to be the pursuers and girls being more wired to be the pursued. But ladies, that doesn't mean that you can't make the first move and advertise that you want to be pursued. But you might say, well, what if he thinks I'm desperate? Well, if he's the kind of guy that would judge you for something as silly as that, is he really the kind of guy that you'd want to date anyway? We need to normalize girls asking guys on dates. Tip number three, define your values and stick to them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So in this passage, I know what you're thinking, but when Paul's talking about yokes, he's not talking about the brand of eggs that you buy. He is referring, it's okay, you can laugh. It's a bad dad joke. He's referring to the yoke or the straps that would be put upon pairs of oxen who were pulling something heavy. And it was really, really important when you put these oxen together that you would pair them together with other oxen who were pulling in the same direction with similar intensity. And the reason for that is because if you don't have them pulling with the same intensity, then they tend to go in circles. And in the same way, when it comes to dating, you want to be looking for someone with whom you share similar values with. Someone you are equally yoked with so that you both are pulling in the same direction and with the same intensity. So if you're a Christian, probably not a great idea to date someone who's not a Christian. Not because that makes them an evil person or because it's the rules but because you are going to have a very different set of values than that person does. And you're almost certainly going to be pulling in circles. Even among Christians, you want to figure out what it is that you value and find someone who's compatible with those values. And since there's a series called What Sex Got to Do With It, I would suggest that one of those values ought to be on creating some healthy boundaries around sex while dating. Maybe for some couples, you don't hang out alone together past 10 p.m. Or maybe for other couples, you don't engage in some light petting that turns into some heavier petting. <laughs> you know, uh, Sarah and I, we, we, we didn't kiss until our wedding day. A, uh, a decision that we made uh, because we were really self-righteous and because we thought it would make us more awesome Christians. <laughs> but, but you know what? We didn't die. And we didn't sleep together before we got married. So I think that was a win. But I will say this about healthy boundaries around sex while dating. When you exercise restraint and resist going too far with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you are actually exercising the same exact muscle that you will need to use once you are married and you feel attracted to a workmate or someone from class or someone from church. 
So while dating, why not practice using that same muscle that you will need to one day protect your spouse and your family from the unbelievable destruction of an affair? So define your values and stick to them. Tip number four, find a mentor. A lot of people don't think about this one, but you know, the advice that you hear in a sermon or that you read in a book can be helpful, but having a mentor figure in your life who embodies the type of values and the type of marriage that you want to have can actually be one of the most helpful things that you can do while dating. And that's because they get to journey alongside you and they can offer advice and their experience and their perspective and they can hold you accountable to your values. So really, really valuable stuff to have a mentor. Tip number five, breaking up is not the end of the world, even though it does feel like it. Dating can be one of the most exhilarating and fun seasons of your life, and it can also be one of the most heart-wrenching, vulnerable, and sucky things that you have ever experienced. And part of the journey of finding someone to call a husband or a wife means that sometimes you or the person that you're dating is going to count the cost, and one or both of you is going to realize that you don't actually want to build a life together. And as much as breakups stink, they are a completely normal and healthy thing to initiate or to experience. When you break up, take some time to grieve what you've lost, get some good people around you, buy some good chocolate, and continue your search and don't give up hope. Most importantly, don't allow it to define you. Which brings us to our next tip, tip number six. Work on yourself. Each of us has some areas of our mental health that we need to work on. And one of the best things that you can do to make dating easier is to be intentional about dealing with your grief, your anxiety, and your past traumas, and so on and so forth. Because those sorts of things, if left unattended, can act like mud on the windscreen that obscures our view, messes up our perspective, and makes it much more likely that we are going to crash while dating. And there's many ways to go about this. One way that I found really helpful was by doing something called Soul Tour last year. Some of you have heard me talk very enthusiastically about it. But what Soul Tour is, is a week-long course that helps you to identify some areas of your mental health that are holding you back and also, even better, gives you some tools to be set free. And so uh, if you want some more details about Soul Tour, come have a chat with me after the service. Uh, but there are many other great resources and avenues that you can pursue to grow and to work on yourself. So my advice is this, be willing to go on the journey. Be willing to grow. Read the books, watch the YouTube videos about dating and relationship skills and improving your mental health. Don't stay the same as you are today. And finally, the last and probably the most important tip that I've got, don't crucialize dating. What do I mean by crucializing? To crucialize something means that you make it crucial to your well-being. So if you crucialize dating, you are hitching your happiness and your sense of self-worth to how well you feel that your dating life is going. My advice for you? Don't do that. The truth is, if the person you're interested in doesn't feel the same way or you go through a breakup you will be able to grieve that relationship. 
and you both will be able to move on and still have happy and fulfilled lives. Said another way, not crucializing dating means that you don't treat dating as a bigger deal than you should. Instead, commit to defining your worth in healthy ways and don't let dating be the thing that determines whether you are winning at life or not, which will also prevent you from trying to forcibly extract your sense of self-worth from your boyfriend or your girlfriend. So don't crucialize dating. So that's seven tips on how to do dating well. Hope that gave you a bit more perspective. Would you guys stand with me? And can I have the band come and join me back up on the stage? Now I know for a lot of us, Dating can stir up quite a few different feelings uh, and that's because some of us have had some really positive experiences with dating and some of us have had some really negative ones. And we might have some things in our past that we might have chosen to do, to do differently if we could do it again and if we knew what we knew today. But can I just say that today is a new day for you. And just because some things didn't go how you'd hoped does not mean that there isn't still some good things ahead for you. So I've given you some things to think about tonight, to chew on, and in just a moment, we are going to sing one last song, a song that is very fitting for this message because it's called Available. And uh, as, we, uh, as we sing this song, I just want to invite you to commit your story once more into the hands of the Lord. As you do, may you be filled with his peace, filled with his goodness, and filled with fresh hope that the pages of tomorrow's chapter will be even better than the pages of today's. We want to have healthy dating relationships here within our community. And as we take the steps today to clear the dirt and the mud from our view, I truly believe that we will begin to see things from a new perspective. And that is something for us to celebrate because after all, having the right perspective makes dating more effective. So Lord God, I lift up each of these ones here tonight, those who are single, those who are married, those who are dating now. Lord, whatever stage we are at, Lord, I pray that you would meet us tonight. Lord, some of us have faced some really difficult challenges, some really difficult struggles within dating, within marriage, within other relationships. Lord, I pray tonight that there would be a refreshing I pray that you would come Holy Spirit and do what we cannot do for ourselves and lift those heavy weights off of us Holy Spirit would you come with fresh hope tonight there are good things ahead and Lord I thank you that as we seek you as we uh, seek out your wisdom and desire to see things from your perspective that you will give us 
the tools and the knowledge and the wisdom that we need to navigate this part of our lives well. We commit our stories to you again tonight, Lord. Would you fill us again with hope that the best for us is yet to come? In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org.